Good afternoon. Welcome to the weekly edition of The Wrap. I'm Laura Leslie, WRAL Capital Bureau Chief. And I'm Travis Fain, WRAL Statehouse Reporter. And gosh, what a week. It's maps, maps, maps all the way around this week. Um, I'm sure if you've been paying any attention, you've heard plenty about it. Um, we have lots and lots of coverage on our website. Um, and we'll continue to because today, of course, is the deadline that those maps had to be turned in to the three judge panel. And then I understand, Travis, you found out that the plaintiffs in the case are planning to uh, file some maps as well, correct? Yeah, there'll be something uh, from the plaintiffs, at least some of them, uh, most of them, maybe all of them. I don't know that they will all submit full on maps, but there are still some concerns uh, that a number of them have. Uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder, uh, who his one of his redistricting groups is helping bankroll this case, uh, the lawsuit that's ultimately thrown out the, the first version of the maps. Uh, he called them under the, the new maps an abomination, the Senate and congressional ones. So obviously, it, there was real strong bipartisan support on the state house map. That right. seems, I don't know that it's done. There's still a VRA issue, a Voting Rights Act issue that some folks, Common Cause is gonna, gonna be interested in addressing that through the court. But other than that, I don't know of a ton of uh, concern about that map. It's the Senate and congressional one that is going to generate something. And who knows? I mean, we got, we got, so many, we got like a 13 judge panel now looking at this thing. Right, because we have that three judge, well, three former judge panel advising the three judge panel, right? And that's Ross and Orr and Edmonds, correct? That's right. That's right. That's the, those are your special masters. Plus they can bring in some technical assistance. So I don't know who all that'll be. And then you got the three judge panel of the lower court. And then, you know, there are seven judges on the Supreme Court. We, we kind of have a redistricting commission made up of current and former just judges in this state. It's weird. We we do. I hadn't thought about that, but it's absolutely true. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so those maps going in today, partisan, those uh, the plaintiff maps going in today as well. Um, what do you, what kind of struck you the most, I guess, about the, the way that the maps were redrawn? That the House was able to find such an amicable bipartisan, I think the vote was 115 to 5, uh, deal on the House map and that the Senate couldn't at all, didn't at all, that, that it was you know, Republicans versus Democrats, which is no surprise. I guess the surprise was in the House, uh, but it does show that, you know, they, they can get together on some things. Uh, I know some people are, are concerned. They don't like what they got together on, but, you know, it, it is 170 districts between the House and the Senate and then add another 14 for Congress. That is that is a lot to- It is a lot in a couple of weeks too. You know, and we had been told from the get-go from Berger and Blue that they, they were planning to work together in a bipartisan way in the Senate, but we learned that pretty quickly that that had broken down. Um, so the ones that we expected to be bipartisan were not, and the ones we didn't expect were. So you see how that goes. And um, I, there, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, I'll be interested if the congressional map stands, you know, I think I've said for years that I'd be really interested to see how competitive districts would change our politics. Would it, would it tune down the fringes? Would it, uh, you know, increase the influence of people in the middle? Would we get candidates? You know, if you draw us together, uh, people who disagree, do we find compromise? And I, you know, we could find that out. There's four really competitive districts uh, on this congressional map, but I mean, the other side of that is at least the way they've done it, you're dividing some communities of interest. Right, and, and some pretty prominent ones. I mean, most notably the one that jumped out at us is the triad, 
uh, because Forsyth would be in one district and then Guilford would be split into two other districts. So three districts split for the triad. Um, and then <clears throat> of course, Fort Bragg, which we heard a lot about during the, um, the House floor debate over the congressional maps uh, Thursday evening. Yeah, Fort, Fort Bragg, I think is a big one too. I, that, and it's hard to see like, well, if you're a member of Congress, why wouldn't you do the best job you can for the military? I, I, it seems like you, regardless of whether it's a concentrated district or not. But I mean, I, I, people who support the base quite heavily are, are very concerned about that, including John Zoka, State Representative John Zoka, who was planning to run for that congressional district. He is kind of, if you want to do a winners and losers, he got hit pretty hard in this process because the congressional seat that he was going to run in is, you know, now David Rouser lives in it, current Congressman David Rouser. Uh, Rouser may or may not run in that district. We'll see. He could jump over to the 13th back to where he used to live in Johnston County uh, because he lives down in Wilmington now. But, you know, so Zoka's, Zoka's plans are, are, are kind of thrown into the ringer there, plus his current House district, I think, is now a, a plus three, plus four Democratic district. I saw him uh, striding, I would say, into the Speaker's office uh, last night, yesterday afternoon, as they were finishing the maps, he looked displeased, uh, and I think they had a, a, a fairly intense meeting. Yeah, and I, I, you know, on this on the House floor last night too. I mean, he certainly made his point that he did not support these maps. Um, so <clears throat> interesting. Um, so wait, so if he's so if Rouser might run in the thirteenth, and we already heard that um, as as Brian Anderson reported for us um, that Bo Hines is looking at the thirteenth, right? Was he the thirteenth or the sixth? I, I, y'all, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, reveal uh, what you may already know if you watch the wrap. I don't have a great mind for these maps. <laughs> and uh, well, and, and they've been renumbered so many times that seriously, it's like, okay, what what number is the West now? What number is the East now? So um, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I do know that Wiley Nichols said that he was going to run the 13th too. So Wiley Nichol uh, representing Duplin and Sampson County. That sounds that sounds right. Yeah, that'll work. Um, no, I'm, you know, you got to remember the bulk of the the population in that district is going to be Southern Wake County and Joko. So, you know, that that is true, but that is a, a strange district, one of many strange districts in that map. Yeah, um, and I mean, obviously, I cannot read the map maker's heart, but I mean, if you take them at their word, they, it, Senator Berger said several times, I've told, told folks to draw as many competitive districts as they can. And that, you, you know, you got... You've got all these different th factors you've got away, but I mean, that is something people have been asking for, and now you got it. Absolutely. In the meantime, so- um, when well, we're before, we, before we move off of redistricting, I do want to mention the three judge, the second three judge panel, the three special master panel. I, I think it's interesting that includes Bob Orr, the former state Supreme Court justice, who is also one of the attorneys uh, seeking to have Madison Cawthorn kept off the ballot uh, because of, uh, you know, in, in the insurrection, January 6th, let's just call right. it, uh, and, and Cawthorn's role there. And it's interesting to me that that they put or on this commission that's going to ultimately potentially decide these districts, help decide these districts uh, when he's involved in that lawsuit. Um, and I, I also want to note, I think it's interesting, you, if, if you've heard any Republicans justify uh, the maps, particularly in the Senate, they will tell you how many of the districts that they drew Roy Cooper, Governor Roy Cooper won uh, this last time out. That's that's something you hear over and over again to kind of justify like, oh, they, 
He won more than half, I think, of the districts in one of the maps. So thus, it is a friendly map to Democrats. I think that's an interesting kind of backdoor acknowledgement by Republicans because they picked that race to focus on that uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest was not a great candidate for governor because you're going to pick the example where Democrats did the best, right, where they overperform. And the fact that they're purposely coming back to Roy Cooper won this, Roy Cooper won this, I, I just think that's that's interesting. Um, it is, and I'm not I'm not really sure how great um, a signifier of Democratic um, strength that race is, because Cooper did get um, quite a few crossover votes, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he did, and I mean, you know, sitting governor in a pandemic, right? Right. Uh, when when things were a lot more. Uh, he was on TV plots. like every day. Yeah. 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 Um, so we'll see that the Republicans also have latched on to if you read the, uh, the, 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 the opinion, I mean, it's 217 pages uh, that throughout the old mass, but there's like one or two sentences where they basically say, if you score XYZ on a couple of measures, you're presumptively constitutional and Republicans have really grabbed onto that. Yeah, uh, because I mean, it is a you can judge it. It's a metric. You can do the math. And it will be really interesting to me to see if the court says, all right, yeah, you, you did what we said in these two sentences, so you're fine. Or, hey, those two sentences have to be read within the greater context of the opinion, and you miss some other things. So I That's what Dan Blue said yesterday on the Senate floor. He said, you know, there's only so many times you're going to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic before you go down with the ship. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I heard him say that uh, at some yeah. point in the 40-minute or whatever speech it felt like that he gave. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, though, Democrats, well, the Democrats, too, I think, have really kind of glommed onto the, um, the the statistics part of it, the REAC, the Polsley Popper, the efficiency gap, all those ways of kind of looking at whether or not a, a, a district is gerrymandered. And I, and I guess in a big way, this is going to be a test to see whether or not those metrics really do um, assess the level of gerrymandering in a, in a given map. Yeah. And, you know, how much you can pick and choose from the buffet. Yeah. Um, so, as you say, um, Lots, lots going on there. Of course, we're still wondering, um, well, where's Charles Graham going to run? Yeah, I got, I mean, all sorts of, uh, I, and I spoke to Representative Graham uh, this week, and he just said, look, man, I'm just going to wait, see how it all plays out, which is what I would recommend for everybody, but I know no one's going to do that. Uh, what is Tim Moore going to do? Is he going to uh, jump back into the congressional race? I mean, the 14th looks like it was custom drawn for him once again. Uh, and it is would be much harder for a Madison Cawthorn to win. Dan Bishop. It's, it's more moderate. Win. Yeah, it's it's kind of a it's a swing district for sure. Yeah, it, it, I, it was described at one point as the swingiest swing district on the map. And there are four very swing districts. Uh, Dan Bishop actually lives in that district, but we expect him uh, to run in the ninth, uh, which is right next door. So yeah, it's a mess like the dominoes. I, I'm much more interested. If more gut jumps, I'm interested in what happens with the House caucus, you know. Uh, I assume John Bell, the House uh, Majority Leader, maybe Destin Hall, the House Rules Chairman, run Jason for Sane. Jason Sane has got to be in the conversation. There, I mean, there are a lot of people that could be in the conversation. Who, who, Absolutely. And so then it, it just dominoes all the way down, right? So, you know, and I mean, we're leaving out plenty of names that I'm sure. Uh, so if you didn't hear your name, I'm sorry. Call me. Tell me you're running for speaker. <coughs> Oh my gosh, you kill me. Um, in the meantime, <clears throat> today was the first Medicaid meeting, the first joint legislative commission to study Medicaid expansion. Um, and that was this morning, it was three hours of policy. Um, 
it was something else. Um, <laughs> a lot of slides, I have PowerPoint poisoning. But uh, one thing I thought was really interesting that came out of that meeting is that they had uh, experts there from NCSL, which is the National Conference of State Legislatures, and uh, they're nonpartisan researchers, right? They look at all 50 states. So they were talking a little bit about how expansion has worked in other states. I didn't realize this, but 30 states apparently just sort of took a blanket expansion and about eight states really sort of tailored it um, to have certain, uh, like Arkansas and Indiana, to have certain requirements to it. Um, but they actually spent quite a bit of time debunking some of the arguments that we've heard for years as reasons to not expand Medicaid. So it was interesting, interesting moment today. Yeah, I, I think we'll see, but I think there are real prospects for this. Um, you know, it, it, uh, Donnie Lambeth, who has been a, an advocate for some sort of expansion for years in the House Republican Caucus and is, you know, quite so he's a senior budget chair. Um, he, he is a key part of the leadership over there. He well, said, but there were but there were a lot of questions today um, about that um, and about the work requirement, <clears throat> which is something that Lambeth wants, right? But um, the experts said today, um, you know, so far nobody, you know, the Biden administration has pretty much rescinded all of those approvals for that um, for that particular requirement in different state programs. Yeah. So the question then becomes, can you can you without those work requirements is part of it, which let's be honest, there's always a little bit of window dressing. I mean, this this program is geared for the working poor. That's the idea here. People who have a little bit of money, but not enough uh, to be able to afford insurance on their own. Their job doesn't give them insurance. I mean, so the, the work requirement, I, I mean, it certainly made it more palatable and I'm sure there are <clears throat> folks who would, who would justify that. But is there another way to put it together? The concerns I hear now, you know, of course money, uh, although that's helped by the feds uh, dropping an extra 1.7, I think minimum billion. Yeah, that's a chunk of change, yeah. It, because of the American Rescue Plan, one of the COVID stimulus bills uh, that, that you get if you if you expand now. But also, you know, we have shortages in so many places, including nursing uh, these days, and in the medical sector in general, the concerns you're hearing now about, well, just because right. you get insurance doesn't mean you get care if you dump another 400,000 or whatever the number is people into the system. And that, and that was a big topic of debate today, too. I mean, they talked a lot about um, nursing, well, nursing was a big discussion that they had, but the shortage that they're talking about isn't even so much today. Of course, we do have a nursing shortage today, but down the road, about 10 years, 15 years from now, when a lot of these nurses are going to retire, you know, um, and really some pretty dire um, modeling out of uh, a UNC uh, researcher over at the Shep Center. Um, you know, we could be down 33% on what we need for nurses, especially in things like um, hospitals and long-term care, long-term care and extended care, especially would have a huge shortage of. So they, you know, they talked about the importance of sort of gearing up more of the um, community college, more regional schools to nursing schools to, to generate, to bring out more nurses that might stay in those rural regions where they're really needed, like out West, especially. Um, so yeah, fascinating discussion. Um, and one I think we're going to hear a lot more about, because as you say, I mean, if you expand, you got to have somewhere for these folks to go use that benefit. And I mean, that's an issue regardless of Medicaid expansion, obviously, you know. The, right. Well, it, it was a problem before COVID too, but now it's worse. And, and as our economy continues to shift toward, you know, there is always going to be a role for manufacturing, but personal services, particularly taking care of other people, that is a growth sector because of the way our population is aging. Um, and because in part of our, you know, continual movement toward embracing better mental health, I think as well. Not everybody can do that job though, Laura. Like not everybody is built to be a nurse in, in a nursing home. Yeah. And, 
I don't know. You can put more money into it. You can pay better. You can have more training programs. But at some point, you hit that line where we don't have any more people who are good at this. Because well, at this takes- point, did you, I mean, I didn't realize this, but at this point, half of our work nurse work our nurse workforce, sorry, um, comes from outside the state. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's you know, that's where we're at. So we're already there. We just don't have enough bodies. And I think you're right. Not everybody is cut out for this, but you know, it's hard to say how different healthcare jobs may change over time, you know, and um, there's also the question of different uh, levels of healthcare jobs, right? Because there was a discussion today about LPNs who for a while sort of nobody was being an LPN because they were sort of being phased out, but now there's a huge need for them. So now they're having to gear up the programs to produce them again, right? So, you know, there's, yeah, there's just a lot of layers to it that are really fascinating. And um, I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about in the next few years. Speaking of layers, masks have layers, Laura. And oh. Are we still talking about masks? Have layered in uh, politics uh, into the uh, governor said this week, hey, we're going to mm. move away from these mask mandates and courage. I mean, it was already a local decision. All the DHHS guidelines uh, obviously play a major role in what local society. But he, he basically came out and said, hey, we th- I think you should go to uh, optional. Uh, this was, at, you know, at the same time, Republicans in about three weeks, in about three weeks, though, he said. Yeah, right, right. Which I mean, will probably coincide with the absolute bottom of the Omicron curve. Right. Uh, Republicans have been pushing uh, to to end a little sooner and they passed a bill uh, yesterday that uh, that that would that, that would move us toward that much. Uh, I guess I guess more quickly. I, I guess I need to read the bill's fine print. Well, you know, the bill, I mean, we've been calling it a a ban on school mask requirements, but really, I mean, schools can still require masks. The thing is, is that parents can simply opt out and they don't have to have a doctor's excuse. They don't have to have any, any excuse at all. They can simply just opt their kids out. So, you know, and my, some people say, well, that's not getting rid of the requirement. I think, well, if it's not, if it's a requirement that you can opt out of, then that's not a requirement. That's a recommendation, I would say. Yeah. And I think, I, look, I don't have my finger just because my kids are in school on the pulse uh, of school masking, but that is a this is a much more mainstream opinion that, than it has been uh, in the pandemic. The, the idea that it's time to go optional on masks. I went to a rally outside the Wake County School Board the other day. Uh, good 150 people there, I would think. Um, and the what they were asking for was to make it optional. You know, they, they, that's what I heard over and over again. Vote on it make it optional. And uh, Mark Walker was there, by the way, uh, with his Senate bus. So I've now seen that in person. Uh, Check that off the list. Well, we now have that bill that was passed in the middle of the redistricting. That was the mask bill that was passed yesterday. House and Senate both pushed it on through. It is now on Cooper's desk. The question is what happens to it um, and then what the ramifications are for that, because it did pass. It did get a couple of Democratic votes. I, I think um, seven Democrats voted for it in the House. I don't know what the count was in the Senate. Do they come home if he vetoes? That typically has been the case. And I'm sure if he does veto, the argument will be, well, we've handled this. Like we we don't tie our hands going forward, but we're already moving to the exact same place. There's no need for this 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 bill that might hamstring us if uh, if the numbers sure. just skyrocket. But I'm just trying to imagine the caucus discussions about who who gets to be allowed to vote to um, keep the mask optional, you know, uh, versus who's going to have to vote to uphold the governor's veto. It's a tough um, issue for Democrats. You, you, that's it. I mean, that, that you can just the, the mailers write themselves. They do. This. 
They do. And, and education you know, I mean, is going to be so big this cycle, uh, particularly with what happened in Virginia, uh, where, you know, Democrats just kind of got crushed. Um, and part of it was because Terry McAuliffe uh, said something along the lines of, well, you know, the schools, the, the parents don't need to have as much say in what their children learn. You can't, you know, you don't want to get into a situation where you're arguing that during an election. I yeah. promise you it is not going to work out well. Yeah. So it, it's just, you know, a lot of Democrats think, um, and, and perhaps rightly, that the reason this bill was run was, was for political reasons. Simply oh, yeah. to put and Democrats I mean, on the spot, to get them on the record, so there's something to beat them over the head with in November. And, and look, there's no doubt. I mean, Tim Moore knows a little bit about what the governor and DHHS are doing. He knows uh, what was coming down the pike, so you get out in front of it a little bit. And, uh, you know, smart politics. Anything else we didn't touch on for this week? No, I think that's plenty. That's plenty. I will, I'm sure, still be talking about maps next week. Probably so. Um, anyway, um, and do, um, if you haven't visited NC Capital lately, um, go have a look. There's tons and tons of content on there about redistricting and about the maps um, and about a lot of other stuff as well. Lots of good reads there. All right. Everybody have a good week. Laura's off next week. She's going to be away from us. I am. I will be off. And uh, I'd like to say I'll miss you, but well, let's, let's pretend that. Okay.